Okay, so welcome to our third class on the five aggregates. I want to start, um, as we often do, with a review of the uh, reflections and homework that you did over the week. There was a reflective exercise from last time. I wonder if anybody has comments or if you did that. Yeah, Margaret. Um, what I realized was the volition was already moving before I had a chance to look at it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's just like conditioned, you know, to the point where I was, I was like, okay. Because I remember working with the uh, 12 links of dependent origination probably a decade ago. Yep. And I was really serious about doing it, and I got to the point where I could feel it coming up, and it's completely gone from my life now. You know, it's just I'm in it. Mm -hmm. Well, you're working on something else right now. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so watching the unfolding of it was, it was just very, very quick. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's how it is. It can be humbling to know. Yeah. And also kind of freeing. It's like, well, this thing runs by itself, <laughs> so... The responsibility is to pay attention to it, not to make it go perfectly. Yeah. Not to make it go at all. It's going. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Sarah, yeah. Yeah, but you, what you just said is exactly what I've been experiencing with my a chronic pain condition I've been living with. And it's, I've been, you asked to, if we noticed a weariness in the impermanence. Yeah. I've been like, thank goodness for impermanence. Right. <laughs> I mean, not... Not not to cling towards something different, but just like, okay, as bad as it is in this moment. It's you know? gonna change. Yeah. And and actually that that not clinging has I've been exploring the perception of pain. When I call something pain, you know, it it feels much more serious. Right, and, than if it's and I, I don't tension it as or, much. And, that's and right. so I've really been exploring, you know, the plastic nature of especially the perceptions and what I can do with my wholesome volitional formations to mm -hmm. encourage a more useful state. Yeah, that's very beautiful. I mean, that's the value of the five aggregates and realizing how they're related is that we realize, oh, we have at least some ability to um, make choices as things arise in the moment. Mm -hmm. But what's arising from past karma is, is just arising now. We don't have the choice about it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Anyone else? Similar on to that volition was I was noticing this week I do yoga every day. And there's challenging positions in yoga and sometimes there's discomfort. I have scoliosis, so I'll feel like a tightness or something. And this week especially, I've noticed what happens, a habit of the mind that I'll do, is that I'm not just with the discomfort or the challenge is what I usually call it. What picks up in the mind is, oh, remember when that happened and you messed up this and you did that? And there's this whole list of things yeah. that wants to compact the challenge where it's overwhelming. And I was wondering why I felt weary and tired. <sighs> yes, yoga is tiring, but usually I feel rejuvenated. But when the mind is active like that, 
heaviness. Yeah. yeah. You've picked up a whole huge weight from the past that isn't necessarily here, but it's all just associated. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting to start seeing how the mind works. That's mm -hmm. what we're exploring with mm -hmm. this. I love the five aggregates, even though they're kind of an academic-sounding term, is that they point right at very specific aspects of the mind that we use a lot, but don't necessarily see all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. These are great observations. Thanks, everyone. Anything else? Not required. Okay. All right, then what I wanted to do was start actually with a guided meditation that's based on um, the Anatta Vakana Sutta, which was the first one that you read. Don't worry, we're going to read it together afterwards, if you don't remember that one in particular. But that's the one uh, that's just on not-self. Because it's actually meant to be practiced. So I'll talk us through a bit of it and then um, guide some practice related to that sutta. So good, a couple more people have arrived. Let's settle in for meditation and find a posture that's comfortable and also upright and attentive. One where we can just rest in the body. Feeling some symmetry. So the hands are doing something similar. The feet are doing something similar. Straightness of the spine. Sense of arrival. Maybe feeling the cushion or chair where you're seated. Legs or feet on the floor. So a sense of balance, of settledness, stability. mind to find some aspect of the body to settle on, often the sensations of the breath or of the body sitting. Checking also the energy level of the mind. If the mind is a little bit busy, then emphasizing the out-breath, the ease, softening the body to allow the mind to settle down. If the mind is feeling sleepy, a little dull, 
threatening to doze off. And then we emphasize the in-breath, feeling the breath, feeling the chest cavity, straightening the spine as it comes in, energizing the body. Not so much that we're trying to do, but that we allow the awareness of the state of the body and mind to naturally bring about a balance. Maybe feeling into certain parts of the body, like the face and the jaw softening. Releasing and relaxing the eyes and the eye sockets. Even releasing the thinking muscle in the brain right behind the eyes. Softening the habitual tension in the shoulders, maybe on the out-breath, letting the shoulders drop and the shoulder blades slide down the back. Releasing the habitual tension in the belly so that when the breath comes in, the belly can actually fill. On the out-breath, allowing it to soften. Relaxing the muscles of the low back. Allowing the straightness of the spine to hold the body so the back doesn't have to do that. seat to sink a little bit further into the chair or the cushion, maybe imagining that it's your awareness drops down an inch or two into your seat. And releasing any bracing in the arms or the legs. They don't have to be made floppy, but just not pushing against. Beginning to open the mind to the natural changes going on in the body, the change of the feeling of the breath. It's a continual flow of sensation. 
changing sounds coming in from the music outside or from my voice. And the changing sensations, little pains, maybe an itch, heat, twitch of a muscle, feeling the body as a field of fluctuating sensations and just resting in the arising and passing of the form aggregate, the physicality of our experience. The suttas that we read, some of them are really meant to be taken in as instructions. So in this sutta on not-self, which was the second discourse that the Buddha offered, he addresses people that he was practicing with before he became enlightened. He went back to them. And he says very directly, form is not self. For if form were self, this form would not lead to affliction, and it would be possible to have it of form. Let my form be thus. Let my form not be thus. So in the very first real statement he makes, he jumps right into the deep end. This is not in our control. We cannot have it a form. Let my form be thus. Let my form not be thus. 
And we all kind of know this, but to hear it so directly, the mind may still not really take it in. So we're going to try it. Open your awareness to the body, the same body that you sit with every day. Here it is. So look into the body and actually try to change something. Let's see. How about a few inches taller? about no wrinkles on my face. Ten years younger. Nope, can't do it. It's not possible to have it a form. Let my form be thus. Let my form not be thus. This is an experiential understanding. You can't make it a certain way. So when we see this ex an experience, it might bring the question, what does this mean? control. I've been put in a vehicle and it's going and I don't have the steering wheel completely. Because of this, form leads to affliction. Next sentence says, because form is not self, form leads to affliction, and it is not possible to have it a form. Let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. Now, intellectually, this is obvious. I mean, we're not we're not stupid, and the Buddha didn't think we were. What he wanted was for us to actually try this and to notice the little part of the mind that is still thinking, this is me. This body is me, and I have some control over it. What is that part of the mind?
Okay, well, what about the other aggregates? The next one is feeling tone. Whether experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Feeling is non-self. If feeling were self, it would not lead to affliction, and it would be possible to have it of feeling. Let my feeling be thus, let my feeling not be thus. Feelings are not emotions, they're the, the tone of experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neither. So let's see about that. Let's make it all pleasant. I guess we can filter, but if we really open to all experience, it's not all pleasant. Or how about, let's have it all unpleasant. Well, but it's pretty comfy sitting on the chair. It's soft. So something's pleasant. Actually, we can't make it all pleasant. Or all unpleasant if we wanted to. It's just happening. We don't really control that. But somehow we lay claim to our feelings, feeling, this is my feeling, whoever that is, language of these suttas is meant to be a pointer to our direct experience. We talked about direct experience last time. The unmediated, unconceptual knowing. I've tried it for myself. I can't have it a form. Let it be thus. Let it not be thus.
just sitting in the ease of the flow of experience. When it's just flowing, there's really no problem. Feeling the no problemness. Look at that sutta that we were looking at, that we were talking about. 2259 is the Anatalakana Sutta. So book here. Yeah, the characteristic of not self. already did the one with form, but let's just um, just kind of seal in the sense of what he's saying. Let's start with that paragraph that says, feeling is non-self, perception is non-self. Who would like to read starting that paragraph? It's about the third one's down. Okay. Feeling is non-self, perception is non-self, volitional formations are non-self, consciousness is non-self. For if we prove consciousness was self, this consciousness would not lead to affliction, it would be possible to have it of consciousness. Let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness not be thus. But because consciousness is non-self, consciousness leads to affliction, and it is not possible to have it of consciousness. Let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness 
not be thus. Yeah, and then just read one more paragraph. What do you think, Bikus, is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Venerable Sir, is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, Venerable Sir, is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself? No, Venerable Sir. Right, and then he does the same set of questions for the other four aggregates. So having had the experience of that meditation and then seeing these questions, is there, um, are there any comments on that? How was that? Yeah. Um, I almost sensed this passage through the brain from like the brainstem of the bare sensations up through, okay, just an immediate moving towards, moving against it. And then it's interesting to stay at that level because we live so much in the verbal. Right. And, but there's a lot of activity at that level as well. Yes, yeah, so you could just feel that sort of more. That's the lizard brain <laughs> that can go toward and away. That is very interesting space to be in, like down below the words, basically. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot that goes up. By the time we get to a sort of a complex thought, a lot has already happened in the mind. That's a great way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. So this is an interesting, it's, a, it's an interesting sutta in some ways in that um, these were the people that I pointed out in the meditation, these are the people that the Buddha practiced with before he was enlightened. These were ascetics. And so they were, you know, they did all these harsh ascetic body denying practices together. At some point the Buddha, the Buddha to be, the Bodhisattva, uh, thought, mm, this doesn't seem to be working, I'm not really getting liberated from this, and so he started eating, and all of his colleagues said, oh, he's gone back, you know, he's he's fallen away, he's lost it, and they just totally turned away from him, and that was actually what allowed him to go and become free, and then he goes back to teach them, and at first they kind of ignore him, they don't want to see him coming, they think, uh, but then, um, you know, then he does, he does, they do end up accepting him because he's so uh, spiritually present, basically. They can't help but be impressed. And he, he teaches them, and this is the second sermon that he gave them. And in this one, they all became arhats. So this is what did it for them, is that they had been somehow clinging to some idea of a self. And that's what we're exploring today, is this construction of hi welcome hi is this the friday night this is the um f uh, sutta study class oh is dr eisendorf talking tonight oh he's coming in a couple of weeks oh i got the wrong night yeah it's on august 11th is that right uh, yeah i'm sorry for interrupting oh that's okay you're welcome to stay if you'd like but we're we're doing sutta study for the next hour and a half okay yeah i'll, I'll give it a try okay cool Here, you could pass this if one of you could. Thank you. So we're on the first one. And um, 
So a little bit, I mean, what's interesting is maybe this backstory, but it's interesting to think about this word self. You know, I've just been throwing it around, and I say, oh, we're going to talk about the construction of the self. It's important to understand that the word self has a lot of different meanings, even in our society it does. And the Buddha was speaking at a very different time and place where the word self also had yet different meanings. So I don't know that we're going to pin down exactly what self we're talking about, but it's worth knowing that here in the West we arrive with an idea of a psychological self because we have this Western psychological understanding of a, a person as somebody with a certain character and personality and way of thinking and body. and So we have some sort of Western individualistic idea of a self. In India, uh, it's not that there wasn't that idea of a self, but it wasn't the most important one. Uh, philosophically and religiously, there, was, there were these schools that came from the Brahmin, the Brahmanical, the Hindu, proto-Hindu tradition that talked about the self with a big S, basically, as some kind of transcendent consciousness that was bigger than the body, um, bigger than our individual life, and that, you know, our individual existence was some, you know, specific manifestation of this larger self with which we would be reunited when we died, and things like that. And so the Buddha didn't buy this. He, he taught, he preached that there is no such, no such self that can be found. And so some of I turned it down. I'll turn it up again. Um, I turned it down a little bit during the meditation because it was a little loud. We also have hearing-assisted devices, if this is not loud enough, because I, I do have the microphone on. But in the back, it'll come right into your ear if you put one of those on. Yeah. Okay. So in some ways, some of the Buddha's teachings on not-self are designed to counter this particular view of the self or other ones that we may or may not um, associate with. So that's good to be aware of when we read these teachings on non-self, because a lot of people have trouble with them. You know, they say, well, I feel like a self, and it wouldn't make sense. I couldn't live my life if I didn't think of myself as a self. And I don't think the Buddha ever really argued against the reflective self. I'm curious, is it okay to ask questions? Yeah. Um, the self and the ego, are those two different things? Is that what I'm trying to understand on a psychological level? We have our Western psychological view, and um, I think I don't want to say that the self and the ego are exactly the same, but I don't, I don't know the details of West, how Western psychology defines all those things. I don't speak from that place. So you can maybe just take your own intuitive sense of the self as what, how you how you want to think of it this evening. I'm not intending to give a long intellectual level lecture about different kinds of self. I'm just trying to make clear that what we're reading in these ancient wisdom teachings is not designed to address the Western concept of self. The Buddha didn't know that concept of self. So we have to take that into account when we read them. And yet, I think it's still relevant for us. Because when you look more carefully at what the teachings are saying, like this one, it's not possible to have it of your body. May it be this way, may it not be this way. And so any association we have with, okay, if this were truly my, my one true real self, 
Um, shouldn't you have some degree of control over what you would call your one true real self? Maybe not. But for some people, that's an important element. And the Buddha is saying, if it is, it doesn't work. It's not going to work. He also says in this sutta that um, the one true real self should not lead to affliction. Your one true real self should not be a painful one. Um, You know, here in the West, where we have more dystopic view of the world sometimes, we might be able to imagine a self that is the subject of a god, for example. Um, the, the hapless subject of a random god, and that could be my little self. And then you might not agree with these uh, attributions that say, if it were yourself, you should have control over it and it shouldn't be afflictive. So um, this is something to consider as you read these teachings on not self, is how do I see the self and what is, what is being contrasted there? So for some, this sutta is very meaningful because they, they realize that they've been thinking that they should have control over their life. We all do that to some degree. That's why we get shocked when the body falls apart. What? <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work the way I wanted it to? Or when um, our views turn out not to be true. We're going to spend the whole time next week talking about views and constructions and the way we make our world. Um, but some people are so wrapped up in their beliefs and their views that it would be death for them not to have those. And this is part of the cause of war in the world, is if you can't let that go, you may actually fight for what you believe to be the way the world should be. It's kind of sad. It's just a construction. But we fight for these things. So this is um, this is serious real stuff, actually, about how we make ourself into an entity, which in some ways we just talked about last week, impermanence. Nothing. Balls of foam, bubbles popping, and yet we construct something solid and real about the self and then defend it, get into conflicts with people. And yet we don't want to not exist. That's a very, very deep feeling in the mind. We don't want to die, or we don't want to not exist. So I'm jumping in deep, just like the Buddha does at the beginning of this sutta, um, and just asking us to hold lightly, but think about you know, what is this thing that we have built? And we're going to explore different ways. So he's, the Buddha's recommendation in this particular sutta is a little bit farther down, and he says... Um, Basically, because all these things are impermanent, therefore, therefore, bhikkhus, a couple of paragraphs down, any kind of form whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, we had all those words last time, all forms should be seen as it really is, with correct wisdom thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. So this is a practice, again. This is not just, oh yeah, this is something that was written. We're actually meant to consider this. This is not mine. This is not myself. Well, I probably don't think my phone is myself. This I am not. But I might think it's mine. Um, but it, and it's sort of temporarily mine. Um, if somebody were trying to take it away from me, I would say, what are you doing? But I could lose it. I could have it stolen. 
I actually bought it refurbished. So it's, it was somebody else's <laughs> before it was mine. So this is a thing that's been constructed. And we can do this with things in our life. It's kind of interesting, actually, to pick up things that are basically yours, but look at them and say, this is not mine. You know, there's a famous picture of Suzuki Roshi holding his glasses, kind of like this. And what he's saying, and he looks kind of amused, and what he's saying at that moment is, these are not my glasses, but you know about my tired old eyes, and you let me use them for a while. Mm-hmm. It's kind of sweet to see our world as borrowed goods, um, as things that we temporarily have stewardship of. It makes it so much lighter than, this is mine, and I have to defend it, or I have to get that thing so it'll be part of my world. Yeah, oh, I have two comments. Go ahead. So the question, it reminds me of what you had typed on the bottom here about possessing or containing. There's a subtle bit. Could you give me some clarity of the difference between, I understand possessing the phone. Mm-hmm. It's an object of ownership, or we actually don't own it. And then what's containing them? Oh, this is a great lead-in to the, we're going to talk about it in the next sutta. Okay. So hold that question. It's, we're going to get to that when we get to Nakula Pita. Okay. So, and then Margaret, you had a comment also. Yeah, um, the idea of having it being a really subtle sense of, of this is mine, and uh, the tired old eyes. Yeah. There's still the eye there. Right. So, the, the, are you saying I is in I or E-Y-E? E, no, I. Okay. <laughs> no, it's still there's still an I, so you know about my tired yeah. eyes. So there's still, there is. Um, there's a way in which, um, there are two ways in which self was used in ancient India. There was this big self or soul that the Buddha was refuting. And then there was just the reflexive use. I mean, they still said myself, yourself. I think the individual self or the sense of you know a body and a mind here that's not yours uh, that's different from your experience i think that's quite normal actually yeah and I think it's normal. was considered normal even at that time yeah. but yeah there is the way you mean the way suzuki roshi was saying that yeah he was still accepting that there's him and there's other people he was just being light about the ownership yeah what's your name by the way laura laura and i have Confusion and, and kind of issue with this not not self because in from what I understand we all working towards trying to be whole and not fragmented and we all have body mind spirit and emotions and soul. This is a uh, this is a particular way of understanding experience. Um, it can be useful to think. Um, of the self, like I sometimes do exercises where I think about the belly and the heart and the head as kind of different centers of my being and what they're all contributing. But I understand when I do that, that it's a particular view. It's a particular way of experiencing things. And this in, this um, this teaching on not-self is not so much saying these things don't exist. It's saying that they're not the only option. And that if we hold tightly to this is how it has to be, this is the way the universe is, we're going to suffer. And these teachings are about not suffering. 
So there's even a sutta where the Buddha kind of teases his monks and says, if you can find any way of having a self um, that doesn't lead to suffering, please go ahead and adopt it. It's kind of a little bit of a challenge, and the monks all say, well, I don't know if we could do that. So the idea is that um, if we hold tightly onto a view of how anything is, we will eventually come into conflict with somebody who has a different view. And that suffering is to be in conflict with someone. So this presents a koan for us, though, because then we think, well, what if I don't believe anything or I don't have any view, I'm just going to get run over by all those other people who are going to impose their view on me. This is already dualistic thinking, though. So we're challenged to take this as a fairly deep teaching that's not a simple thing to do on the surface, not a simple thing to understand cognitively, but these little practices are so useful, like the one of, this is not mine, or a thought comes through, this is not me. Thank goodness I don't feel ownership of every thought that comes through my mind, because some of them are pretty weird. My teacher talks about a time that he was going for a walk, and he was just, you know, having a nice walk, and he walked by a pickup truck parked on the side of the road that had a tarp in the back, and there was something under the tarp. And as he walked by, his mind produced the thought, I wonder if there's a dead body under there. (laughs) And, you know, it's just like a thought, and he was kind of amused by it. But, you know, if he'd taken serious ownership of that thought, he could have thought, oh my gosh, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's real, maybe I should look, maybe I should call the police, or maybe I'm crazy, why would I have a thought like that? But it was, just, it was just like this thing that his mind produced. So if we can think of our thoughts that way, it helps a lot than if they become so serious and so heavy. And unfortunately, it's the same is true for really good thoughts, you know, the most generous thought in the world. Not yours. <laughs> how, how, how is that not going to be a spiritual bypass? And then being not denying your emotional healing, and this is where I have a problem with it. Mm. I don't think there's any need to deny that there's healing going on. Um, not not self suffering? is not the same as no self. So we're actually going to see in one of the teachings later that the Buddha criticizes the view there is no self or there is no feeling. There's actually a very beautiful sutta in the Sutta Nipata that says the enlightened enlightened being uh, grasps nothing as his and rejects nothing as not his. That's a koan of how to live, to grasp nothing as yours but to reject nothing as not yours. So that's actually a fairly connected statement, because when we say things are not ours, oh, the violence in the world not related to me. Actually, it is. You know, we're implicated. We're part of a bigger system. But we don't grasp it as ours either. Oh, I'm responsible. I have to end that. I have to react to that. This is the middle path. Yeah. Um, I would say, as, as someone who been living with disability chronic pain and stuff that there it actually becomes something if you identify with it too much it's harder to transform and heal because there there's just this story that 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 I realized I was sort of telling myself that this is why this happened and this is why what I did to deserve it and maybe this is my life now and 
if you can just let go of that and be more in the direct experience, well, that's what it I allows more op op option. Yeah. And change. I'm not about judging, I'm about allowing the experience, not judging it, because I find the more you allow the experience, the more conscious you become. Because for me, I'm very intuitive. The feelings are the language of the soul, so it's communicating through the feelings. And whether it's emotional, young part of me, sometimes comes through as anxiety and depression, but if I really honor those feelings, then, and, and trust those feelings and act on those feelings, then the feelings go away. So it's not about judging that it's depression, and, oh, I have a disorder. It's about listening to it as a message from my soul. Yeah, it's about allowing, allowing things to move through. That's yeah. very much about not what non-grasping means. If yeah. we grasp, they can't move, right? They yeah. can't flow. So this is, um, we're finding our way through the traditional language, but I think that's one way it can manifest in our more modern understanding is to allow things to, to flow in some way, whatever that means for us. Let's take a look at another sutta. Um, let's look at uh, number 22.1, the first one in this, 22.1, the very first one in this khanda, Nakula Pita who is, this is kind of a sweet story, actually. We're getting into ones that are a little bit more story-like. So would somebody like to start um, reading that one? Yeah, Brad. I have heard that on one occasion, the Blessed One was living among the Bagas at Crocodile Haunt in the Esakala Grove at the Deer Park. Then the householder Nakulapita went to the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down to him, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, Lord, I am a feeble old man, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life. I am afflicted in body and, and ailing with every moment, and it is only rarely that I get to see the Blessed One and the monks who nourish the heart. May the Blessed One teach me, may the Blessed One instruct me, my long-term benefit and happiness. You can keep going. It's, it fits you very well. <laughs> so it is, householder, so it is. The body is afflicted, weak, and encumbered. For who, looking after this body, would claim even a moment of true health, except through sheer foolishness? So you should train yourself. Even though I may be afflicted in body, my mind will be unafflicted. That is how you should train yourself. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this old fellow comes to the Buddha and he says, I, the implication is sort of, I haven't done a lot to practice during my life and I haven't really had a strong spiritual path, but I finally made it into your presence. <laughs> Please teach me. You have a different translation, by the way, from Bhikkhu Bodhi, and it's quite beautiful. I liked some of the phrases that... Who, who did that translation? It's, or he doesn't say. Uh, oh, it's Tanjaf's. Okay. Okay, that one's the one from Access to Insight. Okay, cool. I liked those. So, um, so this phrase at the end, I think, is the, the key one. Even though I am afflicted in body my mind will be unafflicted. Mm -hmm. This is how you should train yourself. Again, these are not meant to be things to read necessarily, but these are trainings, these are instructions. 
what would it be like to actually think of that thought? Oh, when the, you get up in the morning and it takes a few minutes because your back is stiff and you're like, okay, got to get moving, uh, to think I will be, I may be afflicted in body, but I will not be afflicted in mind. So that's catching yourself right before that thought, oh, you know, or another morning of having to get up and stretch or whatever it is, whatever we do. Um, about our afflicted body in some way, because I know everyone has that or has experienced that. Yeah. Yeah. Jack, really quick, and there, but there's a subtle difference in the fact that there isn't aversion here. Otherwise, it'd be kind of dissociating, right? There's right. There's no aversion. So yeah. when it says I'm afflicted in body, that's a statement of fact. Yeah. We can be afflicted. Um, the body is a magnet for experience, right? We've Lee Brasington says, we left our sense organs hanging in the wind. And we did, right? We've got our eyes, our ears, our body is just open. We're incredibly vulnerable beings. You know, we can walk into off a curb and break our ankle. We can, something very noisy can come in and shock our ears. I was in a car accident a couple months ago, you know. The body's quite fragile. Um... And we don't have control over that. So um, this is actually quite a deep teaching. And of course, he just accepts it. He says, oh, yes, great. Thank you very much. And then um, realizes that he didn't quite understand the depths of the statement. This happens a lot in the suttas. It's kind of interesting. And so he he then um, goes to see Sariputta. And of course, he, um, he looks great because he got some teachings from the Buddha. Right, so he says, oh, you look so nice. But then he wants to, um, you know, he wants to know more about that. Or, sorry, Puta says, well, didn't you ask him what that really means? He says, well, maybe you could tell me. <laughs> Since I didn't, I forgot to ask the Buddha in his presence. So let's see, what, what shall we read here? Um, let's go with... Um, that, a little farther down, it says, How householder is one inflicted in body and afflicted in mind, etc. Would somebody like to read that paragraph? Carlotta, you want to read yeah, that one? I don't quite follow what you want to start reading. Okay. Um, he's, it says, Yes, Venerable Sir, the householder Nakulapita replied, the Venerable Sariputta said thus, How householder... Oh, no. no. Is it, my version is what his version. Oh, you have the Tanja yeah, version. So it should be there, too. Would that oh, start, start, right? start right here? Thanks, Sarah, for pointing that out. Sariputta said, Now, how is one afflicted in body and afflicted in mind? That's it. Okay. That is the case where an uninstructed, run of the mill person who has no regard for novels, one is not well versed or disciplined in the Dhamma, who has no regard for men of integrity, is not well versed or disciplined in the Dhamma assumes form, the body, to be the self, or the self as possessing form, or form as in the self, or the self as in form. He is seized with the idea that I am form, or 
form is mind. As he is seized with these ideas, his form changes and alters, and he falls into sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair over its change and alteration. Great. Thank you. That, that was good. So, again, this has somewhat um, particular language, but what it says basically is we believe the body to be ourself or that we possess. We'll go over what these four things are in a moment. But, you know, we have some identification with the body, and then it changes. And what that means, this word, by the way, alteration of form, it's not, it uses a neutral word, English, just alteration. But the word in Pali, I forget what the exact word is, but it's a verb that means basically decline or degrade. And so that's, you look in the mirror and you've got more gray hair than you did before. Um, or there's a new wrinkle or, you know, something else is breaking down. <laughs> and you think, ah. Oh. And so then it says that this person will fall into sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair over the change. And that's kind of dramatic language, but we know people who have difficulty with this, and even ourselves, even if we're practitioners, there's that initial thought of, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or why is this happening, or oh no, it's only going to be getting worse from here, and in some ways it is. It's, aging is not for sissies, as they say. And so, um, yeah, and so... He says the reason for this is that basically because um, they don't have a sense that the grasping of the, the body as myself is what's leading to this. The body's going to do this anyway. He doesn't say, don't worry, if, you, if you, you practice the Dharma, there's a magic elixir and you don't age, get ill, or die anymore. Actually, what he says is, it's going to happen anyway, but you won't be upset about it, which is just as good, right? Yeah. Why not? So he has these four ways of relating to one of the aggregates. And then he does the same thing for feeling, perception, mental, volitional formations, and consciousness, the other aggregates, so we can just transpose. But um, I thought I might, I thought I'd try to think of examples of each one of these. So if you say the self as form, like if we say, I am exhausted, who's the I in that? So it's, it's me, this body. Um, so I am the same as the body. I am exhausted because my body is tired. So this is, now this is, may just be conventional language. I'm not saying you're identified if you say that sentence. The Buddha said things like, my back hurts, you know. And he didn't, he didn't have any identification with it. But just be aware that that's a phrase that could be, your, that's how you're seeing yourself at that moment. As possessing form. My body needs more exercise. Whose body? My body. I'm somebody who owns the body. It's something that I possess, and it needs something. So there's a, that's an example of the self-possessing, I-possessing form. Form as in-self, I had a hard time thinking of a commonplace example of that. I think I would put this to be related to the, this ancient Indian idea that we talked about of the self being a large capital S self or soul and the body being like something that's um, contained within that. You know, there's this overarching transcendent self and the body is a component of that. 
This is a common view. We, we do see this here. I, mean, I couldn't quite think of a, a sort of succinct statement that would indicate we were thinking in that way. Or the self in form. Um, people who are meditators can do this. So, for example, I saw my hand reaching out to steal the cookie and I stopped it. We could say a sentence like that as a meditator, right? Or, you know, um, we observe ourselves doing things. And so this idea of a self in form is like the little homunculus that sometimes we think of ourselves as the little being inside that's at the control tower doing things and, and the body's like its little robot. Um, you know, and when you hear each... Oh, go ahead, Kara. I was going to say it's like that observer. Yeah, the observer, the, yeah. the self in the form. So there's a conscious being inside of this body that can observe it, that can move it. The little homunculus, as it's called. Homunculus. You'll even hear that in psychology, is the idea of a homunculus in the mind. And so it's not that when you see each of these separated out into the four cases, you think, you realize that you don't actually believe in one of those, right? You don't believe any one of them to be absolutely true all the time. But we use language that would indicate that we shift between these different views of how we relate to the body. Um, so the Buddha points out that when we're identifying, when we get stuck on something, we tend to be in one of these modes. This is not the only list he gave. There's a, there are other lists. Um, for example, from other, I won't read the whole sutta, but from other suttas, there's one where the Buddha stated that it is unwise to think in terms of, am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? So these are common questions that we ask about ourself. Who am I? What am I? Am I? Am I or am I not? <laughs> you know, And they sound silly when framed as questions like that, but things like, um, like you were saying, Sarah, oh, I guess my life is just like this now. Well, that's saying, I, am, am I this now? I guess I'm this now. Um, or what's going to happen in the future? Am I going to be unable to work? because of this illness I have? Am I going to need surgery? Obsessing about whether I'm going to be a certain way in the future, or my body is going to be a certain way. Big suffering, right? Mm -hmm. um, it may come about, that may come about, you may need surgery in the future. Many of us in this room will have surgery sometime in the future, between now and when we die. But obsessing about that at this moment, and making it a big deal, that's big suffering. There's another sutta where he says that there are six ways that we perceive the self. And I'm doing all this so that you don't think that the Buddha had like one exact teaching on this. He did it a lot of different ways to get in all the little doors that people have, all the ways people try to spiritually bypass this teaching, actually. So here's the six. The self exists for me. A self does not exist for me. That one's also wrong, by the way. I perceive a self with the self. I perceive not-self with the self. I perceive the self with not-self. <laughs> this self of mine that speaks and feels and experiences here and there the result of good and bad actions is permanent, everlasting, and eternal. So those are many different ways that we can conceive of ourselves, and we've probably done all of those at some time or other. But he says all of these, not that they're ethically wrong to believe, not that they're wrong to 
temporarily take on in order that we can function in a certain situation. He never says any of that is wrong, but he says if we identify with that, grasp it, claim that that is exactly how it is and the only way it is, basically this is that suffering. <laughs> and remember, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. So he tried very hard to point out the ways in which we stick on things. Because all of these represent ways in which we frozen experience into a certain thing. And we, what have we learned? Everything's impermanent. Everything is flowing and changing. And so it doesn't make sense if we ever to try to grasp that. There's going to be, at some point, suffering. So the Buddha says, after listing all these various beliefs, the Buddha says, as long as people hold these views, they will not be free from suffering. Majjhima Nikaya 115. So here's a, a little quote. This is a little um, essay called Searching for Self. And I'm just going to quote from it by a Tibetan teacher, uh, Zigar Kongchul Rinpoche. So this is asking the question, can you find it, basically? I'm sorry, what's says, the question? When, can you find it? It's called oh. Searching for Self. When we look for this self that we're cherishing and protecting, we can't even find it. The, shell, the self is shifty and ungraspable. When we say, I'm old, we are referring to our body as self. When we say, my body, the self becomes the owner of the body. So a little bit like what I was doing earlier. When we say, I'm tired, the self is equated with physical or emotional feelings. The self is our perceptions. When we say, I see, and our thoughts. When we say, I think. When we can't find a self within or outside of these parts, we may then conclude the self is that which is aware of all these things, the observer or the knower. But when we look for the knower, we can't find any shape or color or form, which is somewhat spooky, as if a ghost were managing our home. The house seems to be empty, but all the housework has been done. The bed has been made, our shoes have been polished, the tea has been poured, and the breakfast has been cooked. The funny thing is that we never question this. We just assume that someone or something is there. But all this time, our life has been managed by a ghost. So it's, what I like about not-self teachings is that they make explicit, they really make us look at something that is always just kind of there, but it's always off to the side. You know, we we use all of these phrases, and we don't ever question saying, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I think this, I feel that, my body. And you say, wait, whose or which? Show yourself. You demand, you know, the self to show itself. It's gone. It doesn't. It can't. And so we're asked not to disbelieve in a self or to take on the idea that I don't really exist. I'm walking (laughs) through the world. People say, where do you want to go to dinner? And we say, well, I don't know. I don't really exist. So I have no idea how to answer that question. You know, he doesn't say to do that. He just he just says, just keep looking for it. And it's the not finding that's significant. It's the not finding that's significant. Because that what that does is it lightens up. It begins to poke little holes in the, the more solid aspects of the self. I don't think all of us, I don't think any of us, have all of those self-views as solidified for us. Some of them we hold more lightly and some of them more powerfully. But we all have those areas where we identify, those areas where these are the ones that we get in fights with people about, right? The places where we just can't, we just can't give it up. We just can't let go of that thing. And, um, you know, 
know, whatever it is. I have to exercise every day. And if somebody challenges that, they don't understand about exercise. Whatever it is, something that we identify with. And so the point is not that that's bad and wrong, and so therefore you should become a flat nobody who has no opinions about anything, but just that notice where the suffering is. You know, and when, when there's a lot of strong grasping around any of these things, it hurts. There's a mental contraction or physical tension associated with that. And that's what the Buddha is pointing at as, you know, as pain in our lives, difficulty. Yeah. So it just seems to me that as you move into the, the search for non-self, you also need to have some compassion when you're mm-hmm. going there. Absolutely, because a lot of compassion. <laughs> a lot of these teachings are fertile ground for the development of compassion. It's not done as explicitly as you know in the early tradition as it's done in the Tibetan or the Zen traditions where compassion is really made very explicit. But when I look at these Theravadan early teachings, I find that they're so productive of compassion. I, I, can't, mm-hmm. I can't not begin to develop it, even though it's not so obvious, obviously stated. Because you're starting to point at something very important, which is, you know, why is it that we have grasped onto these things? And it's because, you know, we thought that it would be important for our well-being. Yeah. That's why we did it. We did it for a very good reason. And so, um, but, but as we look more carefully in the way that we're suggested, where is it? Can you find it? How does it feel to be grasping onto that? And we start seeing, oh, this isn't, this, this actually isn't not suffering. This is suffering. There's some suffering here. And so then we start realizing, oh, I'm in trouble because I'm suffering when I grasp onto this, but I'm afraid to let go of it. And so we get ourselves in a little, this is why there's, there are things in spirituality that start feeling like crises to us. Because we're asked to let go of things that we adopted because we thought they were for our well-being. And it shows up all kinds of ways. You know, people get up and run out of the meditation hall, or they become very snarky and they raise their hand and say, well, I don't think that's true, blah, 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 blah. And it's like there's some defensiveness going on there. And so there's just that slow, It's this is not a quick process. It's a slow process of looking. Where's the suffering? Where can I have compassion? Where can I soften? And just, I, I like to hold all the different truths. Sometimes when I feel like, Oh, I'm, I can feel that, that this is something I'm grasping, but I, I'm not ready to step off that cliff. I just sit in the whole big picture um, of what's going on and see, can I just soften around this whole thing? The part of me that wants this, the part of me that wants to let go, but can't. Mm. The one that wants to just run to Asia and ordain, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever. Just hold all of those. And somehow I find a path appears when I do that. There is a path that will... I have total faith in the Four Noble Truths and the, the, the fact that if we hold all of that, if we don't turn away, like you were saying, if we don't turn away from anything that's in our experience, there will be a path. And it doesn't include, definitely never includes, solidifying Kim into something. <laughs> somehow the path is never that. Because <laughs> um, that doesn't work very well. Yeah. 
So this is basically saying that, you know, how does this relate to last week's teachings on impermanence? The self, how does the self appear? You know, we have this self, so let's, let's mm-hmm. take a step back. Where did it come from? Where do we get that idea? It appears as a coalescence of any of the five aggregates. We've been focusing on body because it's the easiest one, most direct. But anytime we freeze that into a compact entity, when in fact we know it's a river, when we sit in meditation calmly and we're not feeling threatened, experience is like a river. It's just flowing, coming and going. But when we freeze that, that is the appearance of the self. Self is this, it's this thing. It's like trying to take a bucket of water out of the river and saying, here's the river. No, it isn't. (laughs) That's not the river. The river is ungraspable. It's this thing, but we coalesce some of it. And that's the problem. So let's look at another. Oh, go ahead. There are, like, behind the rocks and areas, very still moving water. Mm -hmm. There are. Yeah, there are. Okay, so, yeah, sorry. It doesn't always have to feel like movement. In fact, cessation is an ending of that movement. Um, and there are parts that are very, very still, like concentration, mm-hmm. when the body is very much at peace. And to get to that, can you be grasping anything? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. So actually, the, the interesting, the stillness will come when we let go mm-hmm. and give ourselves over to that flow, when we're actually quite and totally in line with the flow, it seems to stop, because we're going with it so much. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say that from what you're saying, I'm interpreting having compassion and allowing and accepting what, what is, is another way of saying self accepting and, and, and loving that part. Allowing is a loving, a way of loving and accepting my, that part of me. Yeah, that's a nice way to say it. And it gives that, me peace that I can really let go and be in the flow of life and not think of fear. Help me let go of the fear. Yeah, that's one way that... Whatever uh, happens is okay. Acceptance is definitely a one way that non-grasping or non-clinging manifests. So, complicated way of saying it, but yes, you're right. That's an example of how we can do that, to accept. It's a way of of self-love when... um, And it is is a kind of love. Seeing is loving. I, I think that's true from my experience. Let's, um, let's look at 23.2, the Sata Sutta, the next one. This, we're starting to go backwards then into how is this thing constructed? Like what happened that we have a, think we have a self? Who would like to start reading this one? Radha. Sarah, you want to do this one? Sure. Um, I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Savati of Jetta's Grove on Adaptindika's monastery. Then Venerable Radha went to the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down to him, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, A being, Lord, a being, it said. To what extent is one said to be a being? Any desire, passion, delight, or craving for form, Radha, when one is caught up there, tied up there, one is said to be a being. Any desire, passion, delight, or craving for feeling, perception, fabrications, 
Any desire, passion, delight, or craving for consciousness, Radha, when one is caught up there, tied up there, one is said to be a being. Well, let's just pause there for a moment. The Bhikkhu Bodhi one says, stuck, tightly stuck, <laughs> as far as <laughs> caught up, tied up in. And so I like this because, um, first of all, what is it saying? Cliff note summary. There's kind of a, a passage, you know, you can you can be really caught up in something, and then when this passion comes in, it's just let go. That's true, although this section doesn't talk about the letting go. Well, okay, it ta- talks about... Oh, it does the, later. Yeah. It does later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so up to this, you're right. You're seeing. You're you're now saying the mirror image of what is said in this first paragraph. Uh-huh. So Radha says, "What what is this being?" You know, he comes and he says, "You you don't know the setup exactly, but basically he says people talk about beings. What is a being? How does there come to be? In what way is one called a being?" And so um, the Buddha gives him a very profound answer. Actually, he says that when he says that the seed for creating a being, there's said to be a being when there is, when we are stuck, tightly stuck in desire and grasping and craving for form and then any of the other aggregates. So basically, um, wanting, he says wanting is a, something that forms a self. So we don't have a self that wants things a pre-existing self that walks around wanting things. Mm -hmm. The Buddha says it's the wanting that creates the self. Mm -hmm. The self is created as the subject of wanting. I think this is very interesting to see if we can observe in our experience. And he doesn't say, I'll also add right away, he doesn't say desire is bad. Any desire is terrible and leads to a self and we should have no desire. He doesn't say that. He says stuck tightly stuck, tightly (coughs) grasping. So it's in the cases where we're really craving, not just wanting. So I have to say that so that people can't object to that. So we'll put aside (laughs) that. Um, What's significant here is the reversal of the order from our usual assumption. Mm -hmm. We assume there's a me and I want things. The Buddha says you appear because there's desire in your mind then you appear as the one who wants and the one who's going to get. So this is, I'm not saying you have to believe this. Remember, we always have to check things in our experience. See if this might be the case. All right, let's see. How are we doing? We're a little, how are we doing on time? I think we're okay. So would somebody like to read the thing about the sandcastles, the analogy? Kara, you want to read that one? Suppose Radha has some little boys or girls are playing with sandcastles. So long as they are not devoid of lust, desire, affection, thirst, passion, and craving for those sandcastles, they cherish them, play with them, treasure them, and treat them possessively. But when those little boys or girls lose their lust, desire, affection, thirst, passion, and craving for those sandcastles, then they scatter them with their hands and feet, demolish them, shatter them, and put them out of play. So too, Radha, scatter form, demolish it, shatter it, put it out of play. Practice for the destruction of craving. Scatter feelings, scatter perceptions, scatter volitional formations, scatter consciousness. Demolish it, 
shatter it, put it out of play. Practice for the destruction of craving, for the destruction of craving Radha is Nibbana. Yeah, so this is dramatic. Uh, he's describing a mode of practice uh, that is not the only one, so I want to just say that right away. Um, there are a lot of ways, once we start seeing what the mind is doing, uh, which we are through the exercises that you guys have been doing week to week, you start to see how your mind is operating, right? Mm-hmm. And when we start to see that, and when we see that the grasping is causing suffering, or we may eventually see that the self forms at the moment that we want something. There's other ways the self can form, by the way, but that's a big one. <laughs> um, then there are various things to do about that. You know, the most common is just keep looking at that, you know, use the Four Noble Truths idea of if you watch, you'll see that there's suffering when you're grasping or when there's a mental contraction around something. And so we do something like accept or let go or open or just feel the pain of the grasping. I do that one sometimes, you know, just sit and feel, I don't want to, wow, you know, that really hurts to be grasping like that. And if I can just sit in that, the mind will eventually the heart wants to let go, so it will let go if we really let in the pain of that grasping. This is describing an active practice where it says demolish, scatter and demolish, shatter, put it out of play. Um, I don't think he means, he's not advocating uh, being violent with our situation. I see this, since it's talking about play, I see it a little bit as the way we might play with our self, our selfing. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, um, Shyla Catherine went through a period, you know, sure, she's a teacher in Mountain View. She was playing with self and not self. And she went through a period where she deliberately wore clothes that um, she didn't like, first of all. So she wore clothes that were not her style at all. Like, you know, I don't know what's not her style, but she deliberately went to Goodwill, got some clothes that, that she didn't like and wore them. And she also wore colors that didn't match, like according to conventional society. She just dressed in a way that she wouldn't have dressed, and she felt awkward being like that. But what she was doing was playing with this sense of, I am a certain way, I I have a lot of fleece, I like fleece, so I, I'm wearing my fleece shirt today. Um, you know, and you have stuff in your closet that you've got five of that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so fine, but they also have things that if you look around the room, somebody's wearing something that you don't have any of in your closet. And so what if you went and like got one of those and started wearing it? It just plays with this sense of I am a certain way. Um, or take a food that you really don't like and just try it. You're not going to like it. It's going to be an unpleasant experience. <laughs> but, you know, just to, just so that you can't say, I never eat that. <laughs> Actually, you can't. Well, don't choose when you're allergic to. <laughs> but, you know, just kind of playing around in order to um, not be so stuck in the way of being, being with things. Because these are sandcastles. They're things that we've constructed that aren't that solid. Actually, that's the other implication of this metaphor. Yeah. Um, I, I got a very strong image from this because I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old at home. Mm. I, <laughs> um, and they play with these with their toys just over and over again, and they'll, they, they call it building a story. Uh-huh. They'll make an elaborate castle thing with little 
Like, well, they're already doing this volitional yeah, formations in action because like you messed up my story that right. was mine and then but then all of a sudden it's like I, I can manage to convince them it's time to clean up we're done and they're done and just you know stack them all put them all away put right them all suddenly the it's like they don't care anymore right yeah there's just some little switch that flicks off and it's like I'm done with this so that was sort of the image I got with scattering, demolishing, the sort of nonviolent image was like, yeah. okay, I'm done playing, we can put it all away now. That's a great way of <laughs> using this word that people don't like, dispassion. You know, it's like you're no longer caught up in the story, in the whole thing, and it's like, eh, I could have it, I could not have it. I don't know, has anybody had that experience in their life? I've certainly had things where I did them even passionately for a while, like I was into some thing, some hobby or some game or something. And then it's like I was just done with it. You know, like one day, whatever it is, you know, your mind has changed. As, a, as children, we go through this, of course, you know, the truck phase and the doll phase or whatever it is, the horse phase, right? Um, and then we're done when we get to teenhood or adulthood. But even as an adult, I've had things like that that I was interested in for a while. And then if I look back, oh, you know, I don't really do some of those things I was doing 10 years ago, even though I was even an adult at that time. So the mind does have a way of moving on from things, but try to convince the mind of that while it's into something, you know, while it's really passionate about it. So, you know, it's again, it's not like we're going to have totally bland, never be interested in anything, but just be aware that the mind can be into stuff or not into stuff. And if you're grasping, if you're so into it that you're going to be angry when somebody messes up your story about it, that's suffering. That's where, that's where the suffering is. Can you be into it but hold it lightly? That's the art. Okay, so the self is created as the subject of wanting. Very interesting. So let's take a look at a different way of seeing how the self is constructed. This is um, Vajira, the story about the nun. 510. Let's see if I can find this. Vajira, yes. Or Vajira, I guess it is. Okay, Saban, you haven't read yet. Mm, I haven't pulled it up yet. I... You haven't pulled up yet? Okay, you're still looking. James, you haven't read yet? Sure. Thanks. At Sabathi, then in the morning. Bikuni um, Vajira, dressed and taking bowl and robe, entered Sabati for, for alms. When she had walked for alms in Sabati and had, return, and had returned from her alms to alms lounge, after her meal she went to the blind man's grove where days abided. Having plunged into the blind, the blind man's grove, she sat down at the foot of a tree for a day's abiding. Then Mara, the evil one, Desiring to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror in the mind of the Bikuni uh, Vajira, desiring to make her fall away from, from concentration, approached her and approached her in, and addressed her in verse. By whom, by whom has this being been created? Where is the maker of, the, of a being? Where has the being arisen? Where does the being cease? Then it occurred to the Bikuani, Vajira. Now who is this that recited this verse? A human being or a non-human being? Then it occurred to her 
This is Mara, the evil one, who has recited the first desiring to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror in me, desiring to make me fall away from concentration. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. Thank you. That was great. Um, so who's Mara? Do you guys know? I know some of you know. Dualistic aspect of the world. It's kind of viewed as the, the deception of the world. Yeah, the deception, the tempter, um, sometimes seen as death. It's just all the aspects of the mind that are tending towards suffering. And yeah, he often appears, especially in this book, in these verses, um, as a being who comes and taunts people or tempts them or you know, gives them these little riddles. And so it says here that he has come desiring to make her fall away from concentration and to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror. So he asks her, by whom has this being been created? Where is the maker? Where has it arisen? Where is it, does it cease? I don't know if I'd be afraid of that necessarily, but um, there's a sense of, you know, those sort of existential questions coming while she's sitting in meditation. And, but she's very wise and she realizes, okay, she doesn't identify with her thoughts. Like sometimes I think Mara appears as thoughts, right? How many of us have had thoughts like this? But um, we tend to pick them up and say, these are my thoughts. We identify with our volitional formations. And so we think we have to deal with those thoughts and answer them or else we say, oh no, thoughts, I was trying to concentrate. This is so bad, I shouldn't be thinking. But instead, she's just like, where did that come from? Oh, this is just a part of my mind that's dualistic or getting tempted or not interested or whatever. Um, and so she realizes it's, it's Mara. And so then she replies um, with a lot of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Who would like to read the reply? Brad, thanks. Why now do you assume a being? Mara, have you grasped a view? This is a heap of sheer constructions. Here no being is found. Just as with an assemblage of parts, the word chariot is used. So when the aggregates are present, there is the convention of being. It's only suffering that comes to be. Suffering stands and falls away. Nothing but suffering comes to be. Nothing but suffering ceases. Then Mara, the evil one, realizing the bikini, the bikini, bikini, Bagheera knows me, sad and disappointed. <laughs> yeah, all of these end with that, uh, with that line. You can. Just, I think it's kind of cute, actually. Sad and disappointed. You know, it's like, oh, she found me out. Yeah. So this is a little bit challenging verse, I think. Um, but the, in some ways, mm-hmm. but she basically um, says, you know, why, why do you think that there's a being? So she's replying at a, at a deeper level of understanding than he was asking the question. She's not saying that in an absolute ontological sense, there are no beings. Obviously there are beings, but she says there's a level and she understands that level is what she's saying. There's a level where it's it's not exactly correct. And this is this level of how come you can't find it? You know, you can't find the self. She has a different approach. She says, this is a heap of formations, not a being. 
just it's an assemblage of parts and so just as with an assemblage of parts the word chariot is used so we have wheels we have an axle we have a seat we have a little covered area we call it a chariot when it's all and it's all assembled correctly if they were scattered on the ground you don't call it a chariot right it has to be in the right structure and then we would say it's a chariot or you know we say that's a chair it's got four legs it's got a seat it's got a back it's arranged the right way it holds weight it's a chair um, and she says in the same way well when there are the aggregates you know there's form feeling perception volitional formations and consciousness there's a mind and a body here we call that a being <laughs> just like a chariot and you know if they were not arranged correctly that's a little bit strange image but you know if we do corpse meditations in this tradition if the legs were there and the skull was there and the rib cage was there it's not a being because it's not arranged correctly and if it's not functioning you know like if it's a corpse it's dead it's not a being we don't say it a living being if the parts aren't working and I guess this is now getting more challenging for our society but I guess if there's no mind truly uh, we'd have trouble with that being a being also. Um, so, yeah. So she basically says, um, I'm not going to get tangled up in who's the maker of the being, how does it arise, how does it cease. She says it's just, it's just natural. When the parts are all there and they're functioning, we call it a being. That's all it is. It's just a convention. And then... Um, this last one is the one that people sometimes have trouble with. It's only suffering that comes to be, suffering that stands and falls away. Remember that the word there is dukkha. It's not suffering like bad, terrible, everything that you can experience is painful. Um, this is actually, this is again, she's talking at a very a deeper level where it says that, you know, basically things that come to be are things that will vanish so birth implies death um, the only thing that gets that we would say exists is something that's been grasped onto and coalesced into an object and that creates dukkha we saw earlier when we grasp the flow and make it into something as opposed to just a flow just a change then there's going to be dukkha so she's not criticizing our normal consciousness and she's not saying that life is only suffering but she's speaking at a deeper level that was a lot of talking by me are there any comments on this one yeah i think of it as at a more subtle level yeah yeah just which is kind of to me, subtle sphere, rather than deeper. Oh, okay, it's, okay, it's more subtle. You know, I just realized that. So I'm not trying to make, like, better and worse. Yeah, yeah. right, yeah. Just Normal subtle. consciousness is just what the I kind mean, of consciousness that happens. She recognized the thought as moral. Right. That's, that's pretty... That's actually pretty sharp of her. She mm -hmm. must have had good concentration at that yeah, point. Yeah. Yeah. And I would have just point out also this is not like the only answer to this question it's just that at that moment when these thoughts appeared she gave this answer and that was her way of not grasping in that moment and Mara had to depart 
she went back to her concentration practice. It's not like saying, anytime somebody says this to you, you need to give this answer about the chariot. Right. That's, no. <laughs> we learn this slowly. I, I still will have to remind myself about the Buddhist teachings. He's not saying this is how it is, this is how it, you should always answer. But in this moment, this was a skillful response. And can you feel that in your being? If the setup were like this and this response was given, ah, that's a non-grasping answer in that case. I'm realizing we never had a break. <laughs> We've been so into this. Do you guys want to take a few minutes? <laughs> Anybody need to go to the bathroom or anything, even though we're close to the end? No? Okay. You guys should be struggling with that. Okay. So self is a construction. And it's not, that's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's just that's what it is. It's something that's built, that's created out of our body, our mind, our experience, we bring it together into this thing that we call me. And if we hold that lightly and use it functionally to travel through the world, um, that works fine. And if, when it, if and when, we'll say when, it becomes solidified and there's a, it's all about me or it's, um, uh, we don't accept that it can change or we don't accept that it has parts that are um, some are more adaptable than others, you know, we don't sort of go with the reality of, of how it's unfolding, then we suffer. And we're not in line with how it's unfolding. It's not always good, and it's not always pleasant, and it's um, not always the way we want it. <laughs> um, and that's the, that starts getting into the real art and depth of this teaching. Is, is the Buddha really said that there was a way to be with this thing that it didn't suffer at all? What would that be? Really interesting. Start getting intrigued. But we don't have to figure it out. We do the practices that he says. Regard things as not yourself. Notice when there's desire, there's a being who desires and who's going to get the thing there was, that was created. Notice that when you're not particularly desiring, this is, another, this is the flip side, that there isn't a very strong sense of self. When you're sitting, resting content on the hillside, looking out over the ocean, you feel pretty comfortable, um, relaxed, neither tired nor over-energized, and you're just feeling quite at ease, how strong is your sense of self? Not very. It's not all about you and your daughter and your life and the thing you have to do next week. If you don't have all those desires and wants and needs and concerns, where are you? Do you even need you at that moment? You don't. You only need you for, I want it, I don't want it, I need to get it, I need to protect it. The self is actually a functional creation to do things, which can be useful if we do it lightly, but often we don't. This is what the Buddha pointed out. He just kept saying, look, the times when you're really suffering, do you notice that those are the times when it's, it's grasped and solidified? And we have to admit, yes, and it's hard to see that because the self is a strategy that we use functionally to good effect. So it was a good idea. And we even socialize children to have a good self-esteem. We should do that. And to see themselves as agents in the world and able to do this and that. The problem is that it's very hard to walk that line, to create that without also creating the grasping, and so we spend our adult life undoing the part that was the dysfunctional part of that. 
and it's not easy because because we we think that that's necessary. We think we're going to die, or we're, it's going to be terrible without it. So it's a, that's why it's a process. That's why it's a practice, and why we have to keep reading these things because we forget. <laughs> we will forget by tomorrow. So I don't want to leave you with, again, with a sense of well, this has been something has dropped away, and I don't have the next thing. So we don't need to abandon the sense of self, which is what people object to in this teaching. That's not what's being asked. But we want to instead abandon the notion that we should relate to the world through a sense of self always, and that we should grasp onto it and hold it and be that self. So instead, this this tendency to do that, the Buddha had a word for that also, it was called the doctrine of self. Or, um, what did he use for that? Um, DT, right? The, um, the kind that drops away. It's funny, I'm blanking on the particular. Sakaya Diti. So Sakaya Diti, so the doctrine of self. So we walk around with a doctrine of self. I am Kim, and I am this way, and I need to get this, and I need to do that, and I may be in trouble because of this, and so forth. And so there's an alternative, though. So he says... Well, he says, as to those views that arise in the world associated with either doctrines of a self or with doctrines about the world, if the basis on which those views arise, which underlies them and which activates them, is seen as it actually is with proper wisdom thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself, then the abandoning and relinquishing of those views comes about. There is no doctrine of self that would not arouse sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair in one who clings to it. So again, he doesn't say you can't have it. He says you shouldn't cling to it. So again, it's not that they're wrong, but they're not liberating. So what's the alternative? The alternative is to see life in terms of the Four Noble Truths instead of in terms of the self. This is the very first step of the path, wise view to see in terms of cause and effect, and to see in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Why are these called wise view? Because both of those views are not seeing things in terms of the self. So, this is from Gil Fronstall. As an alternative to framing the spiritual life around the self, the Buddha suggests instead that we look at our experience through the framework of the Four Noble Truths, focusing honestly and directly on our suffering, the grasping that causes it, the peace or happiness that results from the release of grasping, and the way of living that supports a sense of well-being. That's a, those are a different way of saying the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha's teaching points us away from looking for the self, or trying to understand or improve the self. Instead, it suggests that we pay attention to the fear, desire, ambition, and clinging that motivate the building of self-identity. Perhaps we feel that we are defective in some way, and that our meditation practice will help us find or make a better self. Can we instead find the particular suffering that is connected with wanting to improve the self? Mm -hmm. Liberation entails releasing our suffering, not avoiding it, seeking relief from it, or compensating for it. This doesn't necessarily mean that we dwell on our suffering either, or that suffering never ceases. Indeed, the Third Noble Truth reminds us that there is a cessation of suffering. So this is very subtle, actually, when you start looking at these things, there's, I don't want to say very subtle like it's so difficult you'll never be able to see it, that's not what I mean. 
but it's it's more subtle than what we can really think about and cognize and logically understand at a surface level. But we have to hear again and again, oh, that's right, this project that I call me is kind of wearying. That's what we looked at last week. Do you get tired doing all of this? <laughs> so, um, so it's not that we have to give it up with no alternative. The alternative is turn towards that. Look at the suffering and look at where there's the spaciousness. Because we do have, every day we have periods of feeling spacious, open, connected, fine about things. And we're asked to notice those are the moments where it's not really heavily about me. And so how can we move more toward being in that realm? Not that we can flip the light switch and it's like, okay, that's it. I'm done with the self. doesn't work that way. Um, but slowly we live our way into another way of relating to all this body and mind that's going on. We live our way into it for us. That's called walking the path, finding our path, our way of being that's light about, about this being. I don't know, when I see people that I know are very advanced spiritual teachers, people like the Dalai Lama or Pima Chodron or Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who does these translations for us, you, know, you can meet him. He's, he comes to the Bay Area once a year at least. I do, they don't strike me as people who have no personality, people who have... The Dalai Lama giggles all the time. He's very happy, I think, because he doesn't take himself too seriously. Um, you know, they're not heavy beings, they're not bland, they're quite open with their emotions, but they're very light about who they are. They're willing to change quickly, they're willing to look again and again. Oh, how interesting, I learned something new about myself, about how I see myself. They use the word self, but they don't grasp it. So I take this as inspiration, when these not-self-teachings start to feel like, oh, am I trying to deny something, or get away from something, or whatever. I don't think so. I don't see that in the advanced, the people I know who are advanced spiritually. So the self is a view. Um, it's actually a particular case of a view. Sakaya Diti, self-view, doctrine of self. But there are, of course, other views that we have. Views about politics, views about how the world should work, views about other people. So our topic for next week is to talk about the construction of views. So in a way, we started with the specific. We looked just at the self, because it's such a big, important view that we construct. But the whole, the general process of constructing views, of ways of seeing things, another thing that we have to do, but which if we grasp onto is big trouble. So that's the topic for next week. Are there any final comments or questions? I'm also going to pass around this little sheet, which has your reflection for the upcoming week. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> on looking at the construction of the self. Are there any final comments or questions about self, not self, the aggregates? We didn't really go over that chart that Analio did. I see Kara has a printout of it. You might take a look at that again. Recording these, I won't be here next week, but I'll be on retreat. But you are recording. Yep. Okay, thank you. They are recording. Probably being recorded. What did you, um, what, what can we find that 
quote by Gill that you said? Oh, it's in a it's in an essay he wrote called Anatta and the Four Noble Truths. Anatta being the Pali word for not self. Okay. Anatta and the Four Noble Truths. If you search for that and Gil Fransdell, it'll come up. Great. Well, thank you, everyone, for diving into a hairy topic, but I hope there's maybe a deeper sense of the nuance and the different dimensions of what's being taught with not-self and how we can actually practice with it. It's an actual practice that we can try. Okay, thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.